0: Hi guys, and welcome to the Healthified Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah McLaughlin, holistic health coach, writer, and wellness entrepreneur who has, for over 15 years, delved deeply into my passions of nutrition and health. Before we get started, this episode of Healthified is brought to you by our sister company, Gratisfied, a natural foods company I launched in order to make a more impactful change in the packaged food space. Our products are made with real food ingredients and blood sugar balance in mind. For a discount off of our products, visit gratified.com and use the promo code healthified at checkout. Today's guest is Dr. Uma Naidu, Harvard trained psychiatrist, professional chef, and nutrition specialist. I am so excited to share this conversation with you. We discuss nutritional psychiatry, the importance of food on brain and mental health and how this differs from more traditional approaches to clinical psychiatry, the way of eating she encourages for her patients while also taking into account bioindividuality. the mindset and lifestyle shifts that need to take place to establish healthier habits around food, the gut microbiome and its connection to our emotions and mental health. How functional psychiatry is more than the food that you eat and what holistic practices you can incorporate to promote brain health and manage stress. The difference between anxiety and depression and what inflammation has to do with it. Meal planning and prep tips to set you up for success. Let's head to our chat. Hi, Dr. Naidu.
1: Hey, it's great to meet you, Sarah. Thanks yeah, for having me.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. And I and I have to say, it is just an honor to have you on the Healthified podcast. And I've been um, a big fan of yours for years and have followed you and been. Um, have read your book and listened to you on other podcasts. So I'm just so excited to have this conversation today.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate that.
0: Yeah, so for everyone listening, this is Dr. Uma Naidu. She is a Harvard trained psychiatrist, professional chef, and nutrition specialist. Her niche work is in nutritional psychiatry, and she is regarded both nationally and internationally as a medical pioneer in this more newly recognized field. Dr. Uma has a special interest in the impact of food on mood and other mental health conditions. In her role as a clinical scientist, Dr. Naidu founded and directs the first hospital-based clinical service in nutritional psychiatry in the United States. She is the Director of Nutritional and Lifestyle Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital. Hospital and director of nutritional psychiatry at the Massachusetts General Hospital Academy while serving on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. So impressive and just an amazing background and list of credentials and I know that Everyone listening is going to gain so much knowledge and insight from our conversation today. And as I was saying before we hit record, um, my very first workshop as a health coach was titled Food and Mood. So this is definitely a topic I'm very passionate about. Um, And so I would like to kind of start off by, normally I just ask people to tell a little bit more about their background story and how they got to where they are. But I'm actually specifically curious with you in terms of your background, um, just wanted to back up. My my brother, my older brother is a psychiatrist. He was tr- traditionally trained, um, trained in the 90s. And um, I remember having a conversation with him years ago about the effect of food on mental health. And he wasn't very open to talking about it. And I think it's just, um, as you said, part of being a psychiatrist that might be a little broken in terms of bridging the gaps between what we eat and how we feel mentally. So what is it about your background and story that kind of sets you apart from other psychiatrists that kept you open to exploring this side of psychiatry?
1: I think that's a great question, Sarah, and thanks for asking it. You know, I think it um, comes from my my background. Um, I was raised Hindu. And um, I interestingly skipped out of preschool to spend the time with my maternal grandmother because my mom was in medical school. She's a double-boarded physician herself. And so I spent the time with my grandmother and my book is dedicated to her. Um, so there was this natural influence of being, around being um, my grandparents who meditated and taught me to meditate, mm. yoga, They both practiced it. Um, My grandmother would cook the, um, you know, family meals. And so I would literally be walking in the garden and picking fresh veggies with her and helping her prepare them. Even though I was little, I would, you know, be shelling peas and doing things like that. Mm -hmm. So I absorbed this from my environment, but at the same time in my environment, Many of my mom's siblings were also allopathic physicians, and there were a couple of family members who were Ayurvedic practitioners. So there was that influence and that discussion around food, science, yoga, meditation. So this mind-body connection, I really feel came with me into the world. I I feel it it was just part of me. So when I began to study mental health, I knew that I wanted to study psychiatry. And I had identified in medical school that there was a gap in nutrition education, I know that you know some schools are doing better than others these days, but you don't really have that conversation around food. So, I I felt that Especially when learning about psychopharmacology and the devastating effects of medications, that I will also say are life saving to many of my patients. So I'm not uh, someone who is against prescriptions or anything like that, but they right. also do have side effects. And some people develop these side effects worse than others. So I, I just felt, you know, wow, would it, wouldn't it be good to have more things that people could do as well as taking a medication? And I would just ask a few questions, but there was a very seminal point early on in my training where a patient yelled at me. And I was a very young physician and, you know, taking, starting to prescribe medications and the patient came back a few weeks after his initial visit, accusing me of causing weight gain from an SSRI medication, medications such as Zoloft or for example. And in that moment, I was, you know, very timid at the time and still learning and, Here he came in, you know, accusing me of causing weight gain, but I also had his medical chart on the computer in front of me for the visit. And I knew that it wasn't caused by the medication because he had already gained some weight before he'd come to me.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So you know I redirected the conversation. I simply asked him because it, it, his large very large cup of Dunkin Donuts coffee caught my eye in Boston. That's the favorite coffee and he had a twenty ounce size and um I said, well you know uh, uh you know what did you put in your coffee today and and I'm sure part of me just was wanted to distract him from yelling as well and uh and I shouldn't say yelling he was he was kind of speaking uh uh you know, with a lot of affect, let's say. So, so um, he said, oh, well, and it did, it did distract him and he was interested, you know, to answer the question. He said, yeah, well, I just put what I usually do, doc, you know, this and that. And when we sat down at the computer and I broke down for him that he was actually putting more than a quarter cup of processed creamer and eight teaspoons of sugar in that coffee every day without thinking, he realized how he was taking in empty calories. And When he had when his eyes lit up with understanding that nutrition fact, and that it could change, he could adapt it. That really was also my aha moment because it was very powerful to see how simple translation of how someone understood a nutrition fact could impact what he was going to do to adjust his behavior. And I took it from there, we we worked together, actually had a very positive ongoing relationship. He made adjustments, very simple adjustments to what he was doing. He became much more aware of those empty calories, let's call them. Mm-hmm. I'm not much of a calorie counter, Sarah. I really believe in healthy whole foods and nutrients. But in this instance, it was identifying that he was just taking in eight teaspoons of sugar and sometimes he had one and a half of those cups a day, you know, of the 20 ounce cups, because he was able to tolerate quite a bit of caffeine and, and he was fine, It uh, didn't worsen any other symptoms, and, but he was taking these empty calories. So I think that that becomes, became the basis almost of how I thought, just asking a few questions, asking someone, what, you know, what do you add to your coffee? Uh, are you having a lot of salads? What, what do you eat? What's a balanced meal for you? Mm -hmm. and if a balanced vegetarian meal for someone is pizza and coke then you know that you have a problem because you know the the truth is that that is a vegetarian meal um you know it's not a vegan meal but but you could, you could technically identify this. So it becomes important to understand what someone is saying when they say I'm eating a healthy diet, or I'm, I, I think I'm eating healthy foods, doctor, because I eat this and it's vegetarian or it's, it's this, and I'm not picking a veg- vegetarian diets. I'm just saying it, it can always be interpreted. So my background led me to ask these questions. My, um, You know my aha moment came with that patient and it became a natural part of what i was including in a few questions every single time but to 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 circle back to what your brother said or how he responded i would say that we just not trained that way in psychiatry Right. No, one is, no one is thinking that way. So my approach has been over time and as I have fine-tuned it and as I've developed my clinic, has really become an integrated, functional, um, and really a holistic approach. So I focus on asking people. I didn't write about it in my book because we, I really wanted the book to focus on nutritional psychiatry, right. but I asked them if they meditate or if they have a mindful moment or if they walk outside of the, what do they do for movement? And, and that's really how it came about.
0: Yes. And I do think that you do touch on that on your book and, and especially in your personal life, um, the importance that you put on holistic practices, especially when it comes to mindfulness and stress reduction. And as you go over so beautifully in your book, just stress and cortisol in general, and how that can physiologically negatively affect our microbiome. So it's all important to, um, to take into account. Um, and, you know, I think with that client story that you just recounted an important point to bring up is that, you know, in our society, a lot of the times what we think is healthy because of what is marketed to us through these food companies creates Mm -hmm. a lot of confusion. And I remember before I started to really delve into my study of nutrition, you know, I thought that kind of starting every day with a, um, processed bowl of cereal and really sugary yogurt was healthy Mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think it was a coincidence that simultaneously, like I was really struggling with my own anxiety and mental health issues. And um, so to that effect, like just given kind of like the way that our society eats, like how did we get here? And what do you think that it's, going to take to change? And then what are some of those foods? Or I know you encourage kind of the Mediterranean eating plan um, that really set us up for success in terms of mental and brain health.
1: Absolutely. You know, consistently studies seem to show that elements of the Mediterranean diet, um, which is rich in, in vegetables, food, um, fiber-rich uh, foods like beans, nuts, legumes, seeds, and then healthy fats like avocado and olive oil and, um, proteins such as, you know, check chickpeas, if you're vegetarian and other legumes. And if you, um, eat seafood, you know, they do eat a lot of seafood in the region. So I think that there's a good amount of evidence for that. What I do feel, Sarah, is that it's become highly personalized. Mm -hmm. Everyone's gut microbiome is like a thumbprint. So someone who, um, maybe eating Mediterranean diet may not be able to really tolerate all of the foods in that even though they're healthy whole foods. So it becomes highly personalized. And I practice, you know, in a diet diagnostic way in the sense that whether someone is vegetarian, vegan or carnivore, it doesn't matter what I eat. It really does matter what where the science leads me to share what, what I have to share with them to really tweak their diet. Mm-hmm. That being said, it often is a combination of different dietary patterns that help them feel better. And you know, if someone comes into me uh, with some mental health issues, but already has gained some weight, then we are we still include carbohydrates, but we are careful about which carbohydrates we include. Right. So that's that's a tweak that I've developed over time as I follow the science and, and update you know, the, evidence, the evidence base. So uh, yes, as a general a general guideline, it's, that's always a good way to go. But, you know, there are also uh, updated studies all the time.
0: Yes. And, you know, and I can imagine for a lot of your patients in order to um, adopt healthier eating habits, like it's not only about kind of what you eat, but the mindset and the shifts that need to be taken into account from a lifestyle perspective in order to actually make these changes, right? And so what resistance, if any, comes up for your patients and how do you kind of talk to them about habit change? Cause that can be mm. so hard, especially when it comes to our relationship with food, right? Like we all have one and it can be so yeah. deeply ingrained from an mm-hmm. emotional perspective.
1: So, so, talk
0: to, so talk to us about that.
1: Absolutely. You know, each person comes in with a different perspective. And um, I, one of the ways that I approach uh, approach this is offering someone rather than giving them a list of things to accomplish, ask them, what is one or two things that you really are bothered by that you want to change? Mm. Because if you're not recognizing what those things are, then you probably don't need to be seeing me yet. And what I mean by that is if you're coming in thinking, I'm eating a perfectly healthy diet, but it's a vegetarian diet of of pizza and Coke. Um, I know that's a somewhat silly example, but it, it drives the point home that people may perceive themselves to be eating something as healthy, but it may not be. So okay. if you are not recognizing one or two habits that maybe you picked up during the pandemic, maybe your, um, uh, something that you have to do every night is have a glass of red wine or maybe two, maybe the habit that you picked up during the pandemic is that you have to eat ice cream and now dessert is a part of your life every single day um whatever it is if you haven't if you can first identify it then we can look at uh, using that as a lever to change and if you're not it becomes harder and the discussion is somewhat longer so the plans tend to be very personalized they tend to be based on what a person is willing to do if someone Mm -hmm. comes in and says i'm eating pretty healthy but i would like to learn 10 healthy habits i will actually give them three healthy habits to start that they Mm -hmm. can include every day it might include something simple like start adding if you don't get cooked with certain spices add them in because they have some great benefits and this is how simply you can do it that's where an easy recipe or referring to chapter 11 of my book may help them Mm -hmm. and i will start them off very simply because i think that what you're pointing to is a very important factor. And it's because culturally in the U S we've grown used to convenience,
0: right. you know,
1: think about the fact that we have convenience stores. That's, that's what many of the uh, you know, uh, food stores are that where you, you get a lot of processed kind of junk foods, you know, uh, sloppies and um, milkshakes and that kind of stuff. And, yes. you know, I, 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 all I'm saying is I'm pointing out that we are, a nation that is somewhat impatient and we've grown used to conveniences. Um, So one of the very important things um, that I talk to people about is this is not instantaneous. You are not gonna feel better overnight, but Mm -hmm. I can promise you, if you are dedicated to some simple, steady changes in what you're doing and you get used to them, you will actually want to do them because you are going to start to feel better. And when that switch happens, people want to do more. They want to build up their plans with more extensive habit changes. I'm saying they have a changes, but the way I will talk to someone about them is these are the steps we're going to do. But I know that by integrating it into their lives, that they are gonna make those habit changes. But I think that sometimes when we use fewer technical terms and we just have conversations with people Mm -hmm. and walk them through five healthy habits that they can do or five healthy steps that they can make, whether it's, can you take a walk every day? Can you walk your dog and buy the newspaper every day Or, or go out and buy that cup of coffee or that bottle of water, whatever it is you drink but take yourself out of the house, Get your you get your 10 minutes of sunshine, which will actually help your vitamin D levels, you know, get moving, uh, build up on that walk. And, um, you know, or, or, you know, can you spend 10 minutes of mindfulness in the morning before your day gets going? So it's, it's about including that holistic plan with nutrition being the focus.
0: Yeah, and I think that's really important for people to hear and the fact of like, A, baby steps and small changes can lead to big results. And B, it's thinking from the perspective of what can you add in, not necessarily what can you eliminate. You know, as as you know, humans can be um, very funny in terms of how our brains are wired, in terms of you tell us not to do something and we're just going to want to do it even more,
1: right? Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to drop it, but that's exactly the point of having the list at the end of each chapter because right. the list of foods to embrace are much longer. And you realize there are many, many more things I can add to my diet than I need to take away. Yes. But there are a few things I need to be alert to that I should, I should kind of cut back on if I, if I can.
0: Yes. So let's talk about that in a little bit more detail. Just some of those foods that you highlight, um, that really promote, um, brain and mental health. And then, you know, I when I was health coaching, my foundation was about blood sugar balance, and you know you've already talked about a little bit about sugar. So then what are those things that we should look out for in, um, in our food and society that we should kind of stay away from?
1: Right. So you know, I think, I think the, the foods that we, um, we know and hear about in relation to other forms of health like type 2 diabetes, blood sugar, a family mm-hmm. history of hypertension or weight gain, um are are things that people are talking to their doctors about and they're talking about their doctors uh talking talking about this even if it's a virtual visit but they're not no one is making that connection with mental health that's the gap that nutritional psychiatry fills because it turns out that the foods that we are concerned about for type 2 diabetes starting off with added and refined sugars for example um are impacting mental health they drive certain symptoms they're worse depression they drive anxiety up so even being aware of where those hidden added sugars are knowing that savory foods have many grams of sugar that we don't even realize mm-hmm. and looking at food labels um educating yourself becomes important then you know the wrong types of fats the the fats from um uh, sort of things like processed vegetable oils, which are tend which tend to be used in fast food restaurants because they're cheaper, and they are pro-inflammatory, so they start to set up for you know inflammation in your body, and that becomes an issue. Um, artificial sweeteners. If you're concerned about your sugar intake and you're going sugar-free, but you're buying products that are labeled sugar-free, but they might actually have artificial sweeteners. Several of them actually worsen mental health symptoms. Not all of them, but most of them. So that becomes one to be careful of well. And then the the natural category, which is the processed, ultra-processed, junk foods, fast foods, convenience foods, which, you know, it's, it's hard for us in our lives to avoid those, but having an awareness of, you know, the amount that you're consuming and how often you're leaning on those foods and the number of ingredients that might be on that label becomes important for you to understand. Those are the big categories. And then there are things like trans fats to be aware of, um, you know, in that unhealthy fats category. Yes. So
0: talk to us a little bit about kind of the gut microbiome, the vagus nerve, you know, that Mm -hmm. actual connection between our digestive system and our brain, because, you know, I feel like microbiome is a buzzword in the wellness world and it's having a moment rightfully. So I think it's Mm -hmm. fascinating the landscape of research that's coming um, on scene. So can you first explain for someone who doesn't know what, you know, the microbiome and the gut-brain connection is, um, and then how it affects kind of our mental health.
1: Absolutely. So you're absolutely right, Sarah. It's definitely having a moment. Um, You know, doctors who studied about two decades ago, even one and a half decades ago, weren't studying this because it wasn't part of the scientific literature in the way that it has grown to be as these discoveries have been made. Um, so coming to, for example, the number of research articles that were published between 2013 and 2017, just in the gut microbiome, totaled about 12 to 13,000. So, you know, it, it's really the area of cutting edge research now, now and I think in nutritional psychiatry it becomes so important because the studies around mental health are showing more and more this important connection. So much so that, you know, some doctors are actually thinking of the gut microbiome as its own organ.
0: Wow. Um,
1: and, you know, it's, it's just a, it's a very exciting area. And where it starts is that it is the connection that explains the impact of how food impacts our emotional our emotions and our emotional health mm-hmm. because the gut and brain are connected and most people don't realize that because they're far apart in the body mm-hmm. and why would you think that so it if you take a take uh, go back to embryology the gut and brain arise from the exact same cells in the embryo then they divide apart and form these organs but they remain connected anatomically throughout life by the vagus nerve mm-hmm. the vagus nerve is also called the wandering nerve in the body and it's the 10th cranial nerve. So, I like to call it its two way superhighway mm-hmm. because it allows for bi directional flow of chemical messages from the gut to the brain and the brain to the gut 24 7, 365 days a year. So, it's always working. And, you know, other things that help to reinforce this, this gut brain connection are the fact that 90% of the serotonin receptors are in the gut, um, 70% of our immune system is in the gut. Um, And, you know, just understanding that what the digestion process of what we eat and the breakdown products of the foods that we eat then start to impact um, that environment in the gut microbiome and then set up either for inflammation or not um, uh, inflammation. If you're eating Mm -hmm. healthier meals, you are fending off inflammation in the gut microbiome. So understanding that does become the basis to, um, to, to the larger picture.
0: So with all of this research that's coming on board then, like, is the training for psychiatry changing then in, you know, a positive way and are, is this being talked about more in practices and, you know, kind of like the use of probiotics and all those things that you talk about in your book, um, being adopted by more and
1: more medical professionals so I, I wouldn't say that it's being adopted in psychiatry yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't had, you know, people um, I, speaking uh, negatively about, about this, but at the same time, I don't want to overstate where things are at. What I will say is that um, functional medicine mm-hmm. and uh, lifestyle medicine really aligns with nutritional psychiatry around this because for years we've, you know, been speaking about these connections in the food as medicine world. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it becomes important to understand that in, in psychiatry and psychiatry training, certainly I teach a course at Harvard for our psychiatry residents at Mass General Mm -hmm. and McLean. And we've done that for the last several years on nutritional psychiatry. And, uh, you know, so, so we're, we're, I'm doing the work we are teaching um, our young doctors about it. But is it integrated into the everyday practice? I think it is when people have that interest. So there are mm. practitioners who have reached out to me who are doing this based on you know some lifestyle medicine background or integrative medicine background and are doing that um, as part of their practice, but it's not it's not wide. Uh, it's not widely being done, mm-hmm. and I think that um, I'm hoping that as t- as time goes on, people will will want to learn more uh, yeah. about this important connection.
0: Yes, exactly. Um, so going back to gut bacteria, you say in your book that it's different. Um, obviously, it's different for everybody, and you and it's different um, in depressed patients, which I think is so fascinating. Can that be explained, Can your gut microbiome be explained by um, genetics as well, or is it lifestyle? Is it the food that you're eating? Is it stress? Like, how does someone come to have their gut bacteria makeup, if you will?
1: Right. So you know, I think that's um, when we refer to just the microbes in the uh, in the gut, we we talk about microbiota. When we refer to the um, the genetic material included, it's the microbiome, and you know while we all come into the world with certain sets of genes, this doesn't mean that through food and through other mechanisms, stress being one of them, um, but other things like mindfulness and exercise being being positives, mm-hmm. that we cannot uh, have that environment in our gut evolve. So, I think that. Uh, the, a better way for me to approach that question is we might, you know, have been born through C-section versus a vaginal birth and have a different makeup of gut microbiota um, having been born in a different method uh, uh, at, child, at, at childbirth. But, as our lives evolve, we are also then exposed to different things which affect our gut microbiome. So, you know, it's important to understand that there are other parts of the body that have microbiotas. So the skin has its own mm-hmm. microbiome. The mouth has its own microbiome. you know, so it's it's sort of understanding it as a system and the fact that it can evolve over time. What I think is is a powerful piece to understand in nutritional psychiatry is that if someone is depressed, one of the things, one of the tools we can offer them is what they're eating. And often people with depression have either loss of appetite and they're losing weight, they just cannot tolerate food Mm -hmm. because they just don't have the energy to eat. Or sometimes they have They're eating way too much and they're gaining weight and they don't know why. And they're craving certain foods and they they will say to me, I I just don't know, you know, uh, all of a sudden, this is what I'm eating. If, firstly, bringing that to awareness, secondly, whatever the, the holistic treatment plan should be, maybe it involves medication, maybe it doesn't. it, it, again, it's all very personalized, but then, you know, saying to them, these are the positive changes you can make through foods. These are the foods you can add in, but these are the foods you need to slowly cut back on. Mm -hmm. That becomes a really important way that we can influence what is in our gut microbiome and say, for example, reduce the inflammation. Someone who's gained a ton of weight and has been surviving on fast foods may have developed significant inflammation in the gut and dysbiosis leading to an uptick of those symptoms so just saying to them and working with them in a slow and steady plan to cut back on those foods over time becomes a very powerful part of that conversation
0: yeah and i can imagine that kind of an emotional eating component goes into this as well. And especially if someone, you know, when I was health coaching, I I did work with a lot of um, clients who struggled with emotional eating and binge eating and kind of the opposite end of the spectrum of when you're stressed and anxious. Um, you know, I think that some people eat less, but then there are some people that turn to food, to numb and um, and what have you. So, you know, I think it's it creates this vicious cycle because, in our society, there are those foods that are convenient, that are high sugary, that are, um, you know, kind of working with our brains in the way to send off those reward hormones to make you feel like, you know, the dopamine and, and, and things like that. So it's, it's not doing you any favors, especially if you're turning to food in the face of stress, anxiety, depression. Um, so I'm sure there's, you know, like you said in your book about eating your feelings and just kind of. Mm -hmm needing to kind of shift that mindset first. I mean, I feel as if that would be a big part of the foundational work there.
1: Absolutely. Um, and that's where, you know, psychotherapy, yes. um, you know, journaling the food that you're eating and therefore realizing that you may be consuming many more calories or too few calories in a day, um, or you're excluding certain foods becomes really important to understanding the mindset and, and your readiness to help make these changes. So it, it really is part of that holistic, integrated and functional approach. Yes. It comes back to that with these different components right? And um, so I, I just think it's an, it's an important question to answer.
0: Yeah. So talking a little bit more about stress, um, you know, you, you do say that in your book, stress completely changes the bacteria of your gut in about two hours. Can you explain what's going on there? I just think that that's so fascinating that that can happen Absolutely. so quickly.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, stress um, basically, Things like during stress, cortisol is is, uh, one of the hormones that gets produced. Um, This impacts the HPA axis. Um, Our gut bacteria respond to this. And unfortunately, the response tends to be toward the direction of starting to set up again for inflammation. And that's where it gets us in trouble. Because while it may not, it starts to change and evolve almost within two, two hours or so, just like the foods that we eat can impact that gut and gut microbiome environment. You don't necessarily notice those changes immediately. The problem Mm -hmm. is that it sets up for that inflammation or dysbiosis, which then leads to things like leaky leaky gut. Uh So paying attention to um, how you manage your stress, what you do when you are experiencing that, um, how in other words, how you handle it. Are there other ways that you can manage your stress better other than a pill or medication? Um, that can help to lower your stress by bringing it to awareness and then um, kind of coping, you know, Mm -hmm. finding coping skills that are going to help you.
0: Yes. And um, I read years ago, Kelly McGonigal's book, The Upside of Stress. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's it's so interesting because it kind of was the first time that I, because in our society, right, you hear about stress being this horrible thing. And especially after the year, year and a half that we've just had, which is a a very stressful for everyone around the globe. Um, you know, it's, it's something that got kind of, um, magnified, but at the end of the day, right? Like cortisol is a necessary hormone. It's something Mm -hmm. that's very biologically hardwired. We do need it. Mm -hmm. Um, so, my next question would be, like, if we just changed our perception of stress, right? Mm-hmm. Would that kind of help us to manage it?
1: I think it's. I think it's important to understand that you know when you have different forms of stress, mm-hmm. you have eustress, which is the stress you might experience before a board exam mm. or a college test or you know an important event. say, an important athletic event that you're participating in. And, you know, it helps you to practice more the day before or study harder the night before and really put that final push into completing your work so that you take your exam the next day. But then, you know, after the exam, it subsides and you carry on with your life. But then there's the the stress that is more distressing. And, you know, that is the type of stress where you, it's unbounding and it's sort of, it's, it's, it's coming up for you all the time. It's difficult for you. How you perceive that, how you think about it is a very important part of it because, you know, you could develop, um, you could work in CBT and develop techniques to sort of think about how you offset any negative thoughts that come in your head Mm -hmm. that could be driving your stress. You could, um, you know, learn breathing exercises, mindfulness, you could listen to an app you could um, take a walk, Um, you could take a few deep breaths. And, you know, when someone's feeling that way, it may seem very silly to say, oh, take a deep breath, but... If, if you have been trained and taught these different things to use as tools in the moment, they will come to you. My patients right. will say, you know, I remembered Dr. Naidu to take a deep breath when I felt that way and to go outside and take a walk, to take a break from the, you know, chaos at home during, during COVID when I had all my kids home and I, you know, let my husband take care of them for a few minutes and I just stood outside and I walked around the garden or walked to the um, CVS to buy the news paper but it allowed me to breathe it allowed me to be mindful it took me out of that situation so absolutely mindset is a very big part of how we manage that and how we then think about uh, reducing our stress and it definitely impacts the rest of our body as well
0: yeah and you know and i think you're so right in how taking a deep breath almost seems like this cliched response or reaction to when we're feeling that way. But um, you know, I'm also a certified yoga teacher. So Mm -hmm. we learned in training that like the breath is a tool, right? And it's one of those tools that we have that really bring us into the present moment because there can't be a breath in the past and the future. There can be the Mm -hmm. thought of a breath in Mm -hmm. the past and the future, but there can't be the actual awareness of the breath. And so a lot of the times we, the stories in our minds and the ruminating thoughts, like that is what kind of creates a lot of the anxiety or stress that we're feeling. So if you can kind of just ground down into the now moment, like, I think that that right there can be the most powerful thing. And, and it does take practice, Um, you know, not saying you need a formal meditation practice by any means, a lot of people um, can resist that. until they kind of learn how to kind of even just use the the tool of the breath in the daily life so I think that that is a very powerful point to make um and I want to talk a little bit more about kind of anxiety and depression and the difference between the two because you know I think I've struggled with anxiety for years and I've even been on antidepressants you know back Mm -hmm. in my 20s and um for me though it was it was I I do think diet now looking back on it I think diet definitely was playing a role but it was also very situational and so it's one of those things where sometimes it's hard for me to wrap my head around the fact of like you know the the thoughts that we're thinking in our head to create anxiety and then obviously what you argue is like the the foods that we eat exacerbate the issue so Mm -hmm. um you know when I think about anxiety, a lot of the times it's like, yes, the inflamed gut, but also the thoughts that we're thinking. But then with depression, it seems like to be more of like an inflammatory issue in the brain. Can you just kind of like talk about those two things and the differences? Because I know even for me, I can get kind of confused.
1: You were trying to differentiate between inflammation and Like anxiety and depression, basically. Anxiety and depression. So, you know, that's a great question because many people actually experience them together. And even the medications that we use tend to target both symptoms of anxiety and depression. I've Mm -hmm. often had someone say to me, I have anxiety, why are you prescribing, you know, Zoloft, um, for example, but it's because of how these medications work, how they impact serotonin, and the fact that these conditions very often do run together. But that being said, there are some people who just have pure anxiety and their mood is not impacted. Mm -hmm. Um, They are otherwise, you know, on on scales that we might perform and and ask them questions, they are feeling emotionally, um, you know, they're, they're not feeling depressed, but they are feeling very anxious but with a lot of people, the two almost can be interwoven. Mm-hmm. Inflammation, however, is a process that more and more research is showing is at the basis of many mental health conditions. So it makes sense that if you have symptoms of either or both, um, or you suspect that you do that, you know, you know, eating in a way to reduce inflammation, having an awareness of foods and say even cooking oils that could be Mm pro-inflammatory becomes really important. Um, And I would say that by targeting inflammation, because we understand that inflammation in the gut feeds back in a loop to neuroinflammation Mm -hmm. in the brain. And that really can reiterate an uptick in symptoms. So a very uh, good way to approach it is you know, teasing apart the symptoms becomes important. You can do that with a doctor, you can do that with a psychiatrist, but if you want on your own to take some steps right now today, just thinking about anti-inflammatory foods, what types of foods can you add into your diet? You know, Mm -hmm. things like fruit, vegetables, beans, nuts, seeds, legumes, healthy whole grains, if you eat those are sources of fiber. Fiber is something that you cannot obtain from meat and seafood. So including those in your diet, are immediately, those leafy green vegetables, the color of the rainbow vegetables, um, colorful fruit, all of the rich polyphenols and antioxidants also are anti-inflammatory for your body. That's that's an easy thing that anyone can start today. Just adding more vegetables to your diet, you know, and it's no longer Sarah something that, you know, people, that people still roll their eyes and I understand that, but it's, it's not backed by a lot of science that this is positively impacting our gut microbes. This is positively impacting our emotional health. It just doesn't happen overnight. So you can't eat a salad today and think that's it. I'm treating my depression. No, it's it's a consistent whole Foods healthy plan, including those nutrients that are important, and right. starting to move away from the habits that you've gotten to that may not be great for your for your brain.
0: Yes, a sustainable lifestyle for sure. and and I think that that can be challenging for a lot of people absolutely, especially, especially it's not easy. Yeah, well, and especially because we want that instant gratification that quick. That's. We'll be looking for that. We're looking yeah. for that. And I love how you talk about kind of eating the rainbow rainbow and the colorful foods. And I actually, um, I'm currently writing a book. But I have been for four years. It's called Counting awesome. Col- Colors, Not Calories. Um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And so I, I also have an online class um, by the same title, but you know, I think just being able to um, turn to those whole real foods, you know, on the periphery of the grocery store and knowing that a lot of packaged foods, right, are like brown Mm -hmm. and white. You think about French fries and bread and Mm -hmm. um, processed yogurts and things like that. So just being able to easily differentiate um, between those two groups of foods. But I think, you know, that segues into my next question, especially when it comes to home cooking, because I know that you encourage home cooking, and and I think for a lot of people, whether they have never cooked or they have this story of themselves that they're not a good cook or they're just super too busy to cook, um, so how do you kind of encourage your patients to um, adopt more, um, you know, meal prep, planning, cooking? Um, talk to us about
1: that. Absolutely. So, you know, if 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 part of of it goes back to what their internal attitude is about cooking or themselves being a cook or being in the kitchen, and many Mm -hmm. people have many different views of this, and I'll often, you know, share with them, listen, I I came from a very large South Asian family, and there were many cooks in the kitchen, so I didn't do this growing up. I baked because my mom recognized um, that I loved science, so she taught me to measure. And it was a way to actually teach me math and science and measuring because I I'd love to bake. But I only came to cooking later in life. But I found my mindfulness, my creative space in it. So I try to work with them around let's not focus on whether you have to be the best cook in the world and you have to make the perfect meal. Let's just start with some basics. How can you meal prep? You know, meal prep is, is making, you know, a bunch of crudité and having that in your fridge. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's slicing and peeling vegetables, or if, if that's too much, even buying a um, store-bought um, nicely prepared crudité platter. that's where you need to start. It's much better than eat, eating a processed snack. So I think that, It it depends on what they can do, are willing to do. It depends on their attitude. Mm -hmm. And then I start to work with them around really neat tricks and tips that they can do to get from, you know, from nothing on the table to a, 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 quickly prepared meal that is not fast food, if that makes Mm. sense. Mm -hmm. So the use of things like frozen vegetables, you know, because frozen vegetables in the United States are flash frozen. And so they actually frozen at their peak. So there's no harm in getting frozen broccoli, because if you don't have the time to be washing and and cleaning up the broccoli and, and doing all of that, that you can still have it for your family, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So just teaching, working with them, around simplifying the process and demystifying cooking becomes important. And I understand that people eat out all I ask is that, you know, balance that up when you, when you eat out Mm -hmm. um, with how, how, how many meals can you also meal prep? And, you know, can you be eating the rest of the week or the rest of the time? It's not a perfect life, right? Right. No one is perfect. And it's not about judgment. It's just how can you encourage these better habits now that you have the knowledge that if you're going to that fast food restaurant all the time, or you were eating out all the time, you, you don't, you're you're not sure what ingredients, even in a healthy food that are, Included in that restaurant's menu, right? Because you know that if you make a pasta sauce with uh, baby tomatoes and some onions and some vegetables that you roast uh, roast up in the oven, and you you know make a chunky style tomato sauce from that at home that's different from a pasta sauce you may have in a restaurant Mm -hmm. because you don't know how much sugar they may be adding or other ingredients to make that flavor. So even something that wouldn't ordinarily, like a pasta sauce, in my opinion, is not an unhealthy food, but if it's processed, if it's out of a jar, If it's made in a restaurant and you don't know what additional things they are adding to change the flavor uh, and make it tasty and sugar is one of those things, you know? Yes. So that's where you have to be a little bit uh, careful.
0: Yes. And I think, you know, especially last year during the pandemic when we weren't eating out as much and we were home cooking a lot, I saw a major improvement in my digestion. And I realized that when... I go out to eat, it's, um, the oils that they use that, um, you know, there's a lot of canola oil or grapeseed oil, or, um, you know, the kind of the cheaper oils that allows them to kind of keep costs low and stuff. And that really bothers me. And so now when I go out to a restaurant, um, I have no shame in being like, can you please cook this in olive oil if, because mostly restaurants will have it. And I know that you're not really supposed to apply like high heat to olive oil or what have you and avocado and coconut are, are better cooking oils. But you know, I feel as if it's the best I can do sometimes um, out at a restaurant and I feel like that really helps me. So I just want people to know that, like, if you do go out to eat, like, don't be afraid to ask questions and don't be yeah. afraid to ask for certain things to be cooked a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, speaking of cooking, I was actually at a local market this weekend and I saw saffron, and you mm-hmm. inspired me to buy it. Um, I haven't done anything with it yet, but I <laughs> plan to. Um, can we go awesome. on a quick, quick tangent and you talk about sure. saffron?
1: Saffron um, has an amazing amount of evidence uh, to improve symptoms of depression. It turns out Mm. the um, caveat about saffron is it is an expensive spice. You don't tend to cook with much of it. And it is one of the places that I think a supplement can provide a nutritional gap if you are struggling with depression. Um, it's a beautiful spice to work with. It's colorful, it's delicious. Um, and you know, uh, certainly I encourage cooking with it when you can, mm-hmm. but it is one of those ingredients that is uh, different from say adding a quarter teaspoon of turmeric with a pinch of black pepper every day which, you know, over time will help you. We, we can't, unfortunately, when we look at the studies of saffron, the amounts that were used in the study are much more in keeping with obtaining a, a good supplement than than the food. But that being said, it's, it's lovely to cook with. So I encourage that. Um, and um, and I think that if, if someone is having a conversation with their doctor and they feeling that maybe they not ready to take a medication and if their doctor agrees and this is important sarah because you know i don't want people to feel that because of nutritional psychiatry they should be saying oh i never want to take a medication right guess what you might actually need it you might need it to treat and and lift those symptoms of anxiety or depression or other symptoms that other conditions of which there are many that i talk about in the book just to help you out of that state and then food even when you start taking that medication can still be a very powerful tool that's yes. how I want people to think about it and uh, with that being said you know I, I feel that um, making those tweaks and changes as you go um, adding in uh, sp- interesting spices that flavor up your food whether it's saffron turmeric or capsaicin or oregano or thyme or, or parsley just will 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 help you along this journey because no one wants to as a chef you know I, I don't want food to taste to not to taste good and to say, Oh, I want you to eat that. And people perceive it as healthy, but people also perceive healthy food as not being tasty. And I really think we need to change that, that dialogue because Mm -hmm. healthy food can absolutely be delicious. Exactly. Um,
0: Okay. So I only have um, a few more questions Um, and um, I kind of want to start wrapping things up and, um, you know, think about, let's say someone's listening to this and um, they know a loved one or a friend or a family member who might be struggling with um, mental health issues, but has not really been told kind of the connection between the brain and the gut. Um, what advice do you have for someone who actually wants to relay this information to a loved one to kind of take this more like unconventional approach to their mental mental health?
1: Um, I guess, you know, I think... I think part of it is including your doctor in that conversation, um, and uh, understanding that food, unless you have a food intolerance or an allergy, is there's no harm in trying uh, to improve your diet. Um, using my book as a guide, um, you know, if, if say you speak to your doctor and your doctor is doesn't really agree with you or doesn't mm-hmm. feel and and I I'm I'm sorry if that does happen, but it could well be the case um, that doesn't mean that you cannot take upon yourself some dietary changes. I'm not talking now about extreme changes. I'm not saying suddenly adopt an extreme diet. I'm just saying, you know, can you include more healthy whole foods? Can you add more salads? Can you go through those, uh, the chapters on, you know, say you have symptoms of anxiety, can you work to start to eliminate or cut back on the foods that worsen anxiety? Or Mm -hmm. say you have symptoms of OCD, maybe you can look at that chapter, can you start to tweak it? There's no harm in using food or healthy healthy nutrients to improve how you're feeling. I would just ask you to make sure your doctor knows because there are simple foods that are healthy, like grapefruit, that actually interact with certain liver enzymes, yes. and so you know you want to be careful because you may be on other medications, and your doctor would know that. So right. you you know these are that these are always caveats that have to exist in nutrition and mental health because uh, while. Um, whole healthy foods are fine, there may be things like medication interactions, or allergies or intolerances that you may not be aware
0: of. Yes. And I think that's such a great point to make. And, you know, using your book as a resource as a tool, um, this is your brain on food, to sort of, you know, give to someone or to you yourself take to your doctor, um, and just, you know, use it as um, a springboard as a conversation starter, et cetera, to be able to kind of explore some of these things. I think that's really great for people to hear. Um, so before I ask my final question, um, where can people find you?
1: Thank you so much. So um, I uh, my website is umanaidumd.com. Please subscribe to my website, because then you'll get my blogs and my newsletter and updates on what I'm doing. Um, and follow me on social media and all, all the um, big platforms Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, and a few others. And that is at Dr. Uma Neide, which is at D-R-U-M-A-N-A-I-D-O-O. Thank you.
0: Yes. So everyone go check her out. She is super inspiring, so insightful, and a wealth of knowledge in this topic. Um, and I know I've already learned so much from you, from your book and this conversation today. Okay. Um, so my final question, which I love asking people, um, <laughs> is if you could stand on a platform and kind of mm-hmm. shout your message in one to three sentences,
1: <laughs> what would you want people to hear? Uh, that food is one of the most powerful tools for your mental well-being um, that you can actually make a difference to how you eat uh, how you feel by how you eat and um, that it is not an overnight process but it will help you whether Mm -hmm. you're taking medications involved in different forms of therapy other treatments it will help you so um if you believe that I will, I really hope you'll try it.
0: Yes. So powerful. Well, thank you, Dr. Naidu. This has been an amazing conversation. And again, I'm so honored that you came on the healthified podcast and, um, I hope we can stay in touch on the social media and interwebs and, um, just wish you so the best in all of your work and endeavors. And, um, so thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. It was a pleasure talking to you. Great questions.
0: Thank, you. Thank you. you as well. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthified podcast and hope you enjoyed this episode. If it resonated with you, please share it with a friend or rate and review the podcast, which helps us share the health with more people. For further learning, be sure to check out the linked resources in the show notes, and you can connect with us on Instagram at Healthified and at Gratified. Until next time.